Welcome to Colorado State University's new podcast, The Audit, where host Stacy Nick talks with CSU faculty about topics ranging from their latest research to current events. The history of the LGBTQ community and its role in the fabric of the larger culture is undeniable. It's also one that's less frequently documented in newspapers and museums, particularly in rural and suburban settings. Colorado State University Associate Professor of Communication Studies Tom Dunn was recently named one of the advocates' 2022 Champions of Pride for his Queer Memory Project. Funded by a Monfort Award, the educational research effort is creating an online archive to preserve Northern Colorado's queer past. I'm here with Dunn to talk more about the project. So I want to start with the story of this project. How did the idea for it come about? It's a great question. Uh, This project came about somewhat by accident, as it turns out. I was lucky enough to be awarded a Montfort Professor Award in 2020. And at the time, it was geared towards a big, large international research project, which is uh, where a lot of my research has been previously. But uh, when the pandemic struck in March 2020, we really had to change it up. And so what we decided to do was think, how do we take the lessons of these big, broad, international and national LGBTQ research projects and make them hyper-local? How do we use the community here in Northern Colorado as a resource and give back to the community in doing that? And so that's really where the idea for the project came from, drawing on existing research and, and other models of these kind of projects that we see in big cities like New York and San Francisco and thinking about them in a really local context here in northern Colorado. Why are areas that are more rural or suburban, why are they less likely to have good historical resources of their LGBTQ communities uh, than their urban counterparts? Yeah, rural areas, areas outside of big coastal centers don't usually have this kind of project that's undertaken, right? Even college towns that tend to be large in the Midwest, in this part of the country, are not necessarily well-resourced to do that. And that's one part of it. Resources is always an issue here, making sure that there are people who are willing to put up money and time and energy to do this work. And we were really lucky to, to have that. Another reason, though, that that's obvious is that many of these stories take place in those parts of the country. And yet, for a very long time, people don't feel safe in telling those stories. They don't feel welcome or invited to tell those stories unless there's a really explicit invitation to do so. That's true in liberal enclaves in big cities as well, but it's particularly true, I think, in places like northern Colorado that tend to be very agriculturally based, that tend to be very rural, and where we don't think of LGBTQ life as being rich and complex. Um, But it is, and these stories show that in a number of different ways. Tell me a little bit about what kind of archival documents you found. So at the beginning of the project, we really wanted to just do a gut check, which was to say, okay, let's see if there's stuff out there that would be useful for building the foundation of a project like this. We didn't want to get too far down that road without doing just some initial research to see what we could find. And so the online archive that we currently have is the result of that initial search. A lot of that work was done during the pandemic. What we did in the class here at CSU that's connected to that in the spring of 2022 is try to do that work similarly in a much more thoughtful way and to bring a bunch of students into the process and to therefore identify specific newspapers, specific archives that were likely or expected to have some of this information in them about Northern Colorado 
and assign students responsibility for particular pieces of that puzzle to say, hey, you're going to be in charge of looking at what's published in the Colorado in between 1960 and 1965, doing searches for the term homosexual, sodomy, crimes against nature, uh, some of the, the historical terminology that would indicate LGBTQ content that you're not likely to find otherwise. And so we did that in a really collaborative way, and the students produced some really great information from the start that's now the foundation upon which we, we do a lot of the work of the project. Now, you're going to be doing a lot of outreach this month as part of Pride Month at various events uh, to collect oral histories. But you've already begun collecting these stories, and I wondered if you could share a couple of them with us. We've been lucky to find an embarrassment of riches in in that regard. And one of the values that we set out in the project from the beginning was to say that we didn't want to sort of self-censor in thinking about those stories. We wanted to make sure that we were intentional and struck a balance between giving space and time to stories that made us both proud and happy about what we found, but also to recognize and do justice for folks who had a bad experience here in Northern Colorado um, and, and whose stories are maybe more likely to be told because they end up being about criminal behavior or they end up being about persecution or violence or something of that, that sort. And so we found a whole bunch of different things. One of the ones that really resonated with our students that we, we came across in the class was the story of Thomas John Peters who was a student in education here at CSU in uh, 1967, who was a murder victim, and he was murdered in Denver. And it wasn't until the trial that the prosecutors explained that he had been murdered because he was a—the term they used, a homosexual, but a gay man, right? He was a known homosexual, and the juveniles that he was with figured that out and, and essentially murdered him for that. And so— That is a really sad story um, that didn't get a lot of attention then, and it really hasn't gotten a lot of attention since. There was a little bit of time spent on that in the aftermath of the Matthew Shepard murder in Laramie, Wyoming in 1998. But even then, that story really hasn't been told. And so that's been really meaningful to our students to know that there are students on this campus who've identified in different ways as part of the LGBTQ community who've faced that level of persecution. Granted, it was 55 years ago at this point, but that that's still real and that still mattered. But there's good stories, too. And, and that's also been really important. One that we only just have a snippet of that I really love is a report in the Coloradoan from 1974 of two young women who go to the Larimer County clerk's office and inquire whether they can get a marriage license. And the clerk's office being just a little befuddled by that, they write it off as it's a joke that these girls are just trying to cause trouble or maybe they're doing research for a class, but they don't actually talk about it in a recorded place like a newspaper until a year later when the Boulder County clerk office starts issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples for a time. And so we know a lot about that Boulder part of the story, but we don't hear that that was a thing that had happened in Larimer County a year earlier. And maybe we shouldn't write that off as a joke. Maybe we should think about that as potentially a, a real thing that happened. Did they actually get a license? It's one of the stories that we have very little firsthand information on. But what we do know is that after making this inquiry, uh, they didn't get the license and no marriage licenses to same-sex couples were given th- that we know of until well after, right? It, it, within the last recent years um, as part of the, the same-sex marriage movement of the 21st century. We do believe that they were referred to a lawyer's office that essentially said, go talk to a lawyer if this is something you're interested in, because we 
can't help you, but you're definitely going to need some representation to navigate that process. But we also know that a year later, once the Boulder County Clerk's Office starts issuing those licenses, reporters at the very least start asking the Larimer County clerk, are you going to do this too? Is this something that we're going to support? Is this something you're into? And the answer was a firm no. It was interesting in that it was not couched in a particular discrimination. It wasn't a hostile no, but it was a, this isn't something we think we have the power to do. We will refer people to other counties. And so the expectation is that if somebody came to Larimer County, they would send them down to Boulder and say, if you want to do this, you've got to go to Boulder to get that figured out. The last one I'll share just because our, our students regularly love this story. And this is a great one that that came to us from talking to people in the community is the, the story of Theron Abbott, which I think some people here on campus know, who in 1974, as a male graduate student in political science, was elected homecoming queen of Colorado State University. That was kind of an unusual thing uh, at that point in time. And it was a very political move, I think, on Abbott's part. He ran on the, the slogan, kick the sexist habit, vote for Theron Abbott. But he won and he won overwhelmingly. He beat out 10 women candidates to be elected the queen of homecoming for Colorado State University. And it created quite a ruckus, including some national headlines that were not particularly forgiving. And the university ended the, the homecoming queen tradition after that because it was so controversial. And yet it's something that I think today speaks so much to our, our students, speaks so much to the wider community about the role of gender, about the construction of gender, about the importance in people crossing those lines and being who they are and living their life authentically. And so there's great stories like that that we've uncovered and, and that people know, but that I think a lot of people in Northern Colorado and on the CSU campus just haven't had the chance to hear about. Were there any stories that were really surprising to you that you've heard so far? And I think one that, that surprises me a little bit is just the sheer number of times that LGBTQ rights ordinances in Fort Collins in particular were put up and then soundly voted down. Um, I think a lot of us are aware that that happened in a fairly spectacular way in 1998, a few weeks after Matthew Shepard was murdered. And that struck sort of a national headline that there was a popular decision to not protect LGBTQ people in the city that Matthew Shepard died in amidst that national hubbub. But that was only the most recent one. It happened two or three times before that, going back decades earlier. And so I think it's surprising to many people to see just the regular attempts to try to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in this part of the state and certainly in this city and to see that pushed back and to see that rejected over and over again. In some ways, it's surprising just at how persistent the advocates were, but it's also surprising to many people to know that there's a pattern there. It's not a, a once-off. Some of the things that I think are, are more surprising are just the fun things we learn. So we recently did an interview with somebody where we asked them, you know, what was the, the most common way that lesbians in this context would meet each other, let's say, in the early 1980s. And the person shared that one of the ways that they found a lot of the dating scene was around moving when people had to move uh, either at the end of the semester or out of the from one place to another, either because a relationship ended or a new relationship started. They would usually bring a group of other self-identified lesbians together to, to help move things. And that became a really social event. And so the person that we were talking to shared how that was a really meaningful way that LGBTQ social life took place for a period of time in, in this part of the state. And it's something that would never have occurred to me. But that's why you have to talk to people. And that's why you have to ask. What kind of reactions are you getting from some of these folks? And just when they, they get the chance to talk about everything, the difficult times, but also the joyful times. It's a really humbling experience to get to, to talk to LGBTQ people, but particular LGBTQ elders, people in their 60s, 70s and 80s 
about these kind of experiences. The reactions vary. I, I mean, across the board, the reactions of people we've talked to so far has been really positive. Most of the people that are asked to participate in the project are very excited to talk to us, which has been great. And, and again, a great honor for us that, that they're willing to share those stories. Sometimes there's a very genuine questioning of, is my story important? Why would you want to talk to me? And in some ways, that's a reflection of the larger culture not being interested for a long time and hearing these stories that, that I think sometimes people internalize. And I get to always assure them, we're, we're very excited to talk to you. We're very excited to hear about um, not just the, the big and important things that you lived through, but your day-to-day -day life. What was, you know, just going out for a coffee like as a, a same-sex couple in northern Colorado in 1985? What did that, what did that look like? Um, and so, so those are some reactions that we get. Uh, it, it's not unusual that we have people who end up in tears at some point in these interviews, sometimes out of joy, but, but a lot of times out of sadness, either talking about people who they lost or horrible experiences that they had. There's been a real vulnerability in these interviews where people have recognized that this is a chance to sort of set the record uh, the way that they want it set. And so people have leaned into that in ways that brings the emotions to the surface. But my, my favorite reaction, and I think the one that we get the most, is just real pride. People in this part of the state, particularly people who've lived here for a long time and are LGBTQ identified, are really proud of the space that they made for themselves. In a community that wasn't always open, wasn't always accepting, they did things that they know mattered. And they know that the more LGBTQ inclusive community that we live in now only exists because some of the things that they did. And so, so there's a real pride there, not in a boastful kind of way, but a real deep appreciation, I think, that after many decades, they are being seen for who they are. And this project, it's not just about sharing those stories and giving that platform, but there's a purpose. There's something to having something for the younger generation. Can you tell me a little bit more about the impact that you're hoping that it will have? One of the, the target audiences of this work is LGBTQ youth. My background and training is as a communication studies faculty member and researcher. And so I'm always thinking about audience, not just the creation of messages or the doing of research, but who's it for? Who does it serve? And what do we try to change with the time and energy that we spend uncovering these things? And so LGBTQ youth from the beginning has always been a really important audience for this project. Project. That was particularly true when we started during the pandemic because it was very clear, not just here in northern Colorado, but elsewhere, that LGBTQ youth's ability to see themselves, to talk to other people like themselves, to be in supportive environments was greatly curtailed by the pandemic because everything was greatly curtailed by the pandemic. But there was some real worries about LGBTQ youth at that time. And so we thought, hey, maybe this is an online resource that we could start to develop that might make a local intervention to help some of those folks. But it's also about the broader national conversation that's going on here as well. It's a really hard time to be a LGBTQ young person in this country. That's been true for a long time, but it's particularly on the edge right now where the politics is very much addressing that. And there's a lot of measures in different places that are seeking to limit or minimize our ability to tell these kind of stories to exactly those kind of people who, who need it, right? Uh, LGBTQ youth really need to be affirmed. They need to be represented. They need to see themselves. And the Queer Memory Project argues that they need to be able to see themselves in the community in which they already live. It's wonderful and great that our local schools can 
can talk to and point to what Harvey Milk did in San Francisco in the, the 1970s. But that feels like a story about somebody far away who did something important. And sometimes the message of that is if you want to live this way and be who you really are, you need to leave here and you need to go somewhere else to live that life. And implicitly, the work that we're doing is to say those people have always been here, too, and they've built lives for themselves here and they enrich our community and make our community a better place, both on campus and off. And so a lot of this is really geared towards giving support and giving messages and giving representation to LGBTQ young people who aren't always getting that and particularly are not getting that so close to home. You're now two years into this project. What's next for the project and what's next for you? Yeah, it's a little surprising to be two years into the project. The time flies when you're having fun and there's lots of important work to do still, which is both an honor and a little scary um, because there's so much story to tell here. This summer, we're occupying our time with doing oral history interviews, so sitting down and having conversations with LGBTQ people from northern Colorado who, in some cases, who've lived here their entire lives, and in other cases, people who were here for a time and maybe left or came back in some circumstances, and trying to uncover the stories and history that's only known to the people who live those lives, the kind of things that aren't going to be in a newspaper, the kind of things that aren't going to be in a newsletter or an archive somewhere. So that's really where we're focusing our time right now, and that will keep us quite busy, um, and we're, we're uh, going to spend some time at Pride events uh, and in the public eye this summer, both to share those stories, but also to hopefully encourage more people to come and share those stories with us so we can document them and record them. But then the next step of the project after that is two parts. One is to take that information and then to sort of read it back into the existing work that we've done up till now, uh, including building a timeline of LGBTQ history in northern Colorado, writing some blog posts that will go into production about particular people and events. They're all wonderful, and yet they really need that extra context of what did people who lived through these experiences say. And in some cases, they might tell us a very different story, and it's going to radically change what that final presentation of that information looks like. So using that information both to preserve those stories, but then also to inform some of that. And then the very last part of this project, which has always been the goal from the beginning, is to focus on how do we share these stories in compelling ways? How do we get these stories out to people so that they know broadly that there's an LGBTQ history to this part of the, the state and the country that they should be proud of and they should know about? but also to know some of those specifics and to know those names and those individuals. And so we'll be doing a lot of that in October, which is LGBTQ History Month, uh, with some programming both here on campus and off. Um, we are doing a social media campaign which shares some of this information, which will be largely student-led. A lot of this will go into Pride Month next year as well, too, so Pride 2023. And we also do a lot of community partner work so partnering with LGBTQ organizations, both in the state and also in the region, as well as folks in the city of Fort Collins and elsewhere who are just interested in learning more about this history and making it a part of a broader conversation. And so that communication part of the project is really where we're going to be leaning in in the next couple of months. My hope is personally that by the end of 2023, we've done a really good job doing all of that and we've recorded some really important, meaningful parts of that past so that there's no LGBTQ kid who walks into a library in northern Colorado and gets an answer to say, oh, no, we don't have anything like that. They'll, they'll know that those resources are there and they have them. 
we'll see what comes from that. There might be a need to do this work more. And I think that would be exciting to do. But regardless of what shape it takes, my focus is always going to be on creating a space to tell these stories, both here locally, but also in a broader national and international context. I really believe that the LGBTQ past is a great resource. And it's not just a resource for writing history books. It's a resource for thinking about who we want to be as a country, who we want to be as parents, who we want to be for our kids. And it's going to be essential that we know that past to be able to be a good, productive, and inclusive society in the 21st century. Well, we're really looking forward to seeing uh, the stories that come out of this project. I think it's going to be really exciting. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Again, that's Colorado State University Associate Professor of Communication Studies, Tom Dunn, talking about his work on the Queer Memory Project. I'm your host, Stacey Nick, and this is The Audit, CSU's new podcast featuring conversations with CSU faculty on everything from research to current events. <music>